Welcome back. We are continuing our journey through Rabbi Sachs' book, Morality. We are on chapter 15, uh, entitled The Return of Public Shaming. Rabbi Sachs starts off talking about social media and how the social media environment has made almost any kind of public comment ex- exceptionally hazardous. And really, it's in fact, in effect brought back public shaming. We've all seen tweets or, or videos that have gone viral, and some the, the participants have definitely done wrong, but sometimes there's a pile-on effect where it really escalates out of control. Now, from the positive perspective, social media has provided a voice for those who otherwise might not have it. But the problem is, it also leads to a certain aspe- an aspect of vigilante justice, which follows no legal norms. There's no due process. The accused can't present their case. There's no impartial procedure for deciding what, whether a wrong has actually been committed. And uh, David Brooks actually comments on this and says that oftentimes there's the zealotry involved in some of these responses are often fueled by people who are working out their own psychological wounds. And when you're when a denunciation is done through social media rather than face to face, you can destroy people without even knowing them. And there's no personal con- connection that allows apology or forgiveness. And Rabbi Sachs's bigger point is he wants to describe the difference between a guilt culture and a shame culture between retribution and revenge. And that really the, the difference is fundamental and turns on the question, is justice personal or impersonal? Now the idea of shaming is an ancient response to wrongdoing that's been established well before the court of law or judicial procedures. It was really the justice of clans, groups, and tribes. And we see this um, throughout history in examples such as in Shakespeare's uh, Romeo and Juliet between the Montagues and the Capulets. Or in modern time movie, you can t- look at the Godfather between the Corleone and, and the Tataglia crime family. And really, it's, it's tribal loyalties where uh, people are going back and forth against each other, trying to defend their sacred honor. And the, the tribal loyalty can be much stronger than any impartial legal process. Now, if you look at the Hebrew Bible, what it's trying to do is bring an end to a, a culture, a revenge culture. If you look at the first recorded instance of interpersonal forgiveness in the Bible, it's actually Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers who had earlier sold him as a slave. Now, forgiveness and retribution belong together. They are not contrast, but they're two aspects of the same moral vision. Revenge is very personal. I and my group have been wronged, therefore I and my group must do wrong to you in return. Retribution is impersonal, and that's what justice is all about. Verdict and punishments are no longer the domain of the family, but there are independent uh, mediators, such as judges, courts, who help determine what the proper punishment is. So the appearance of revenge, courtesy of social media, is a massive social regression because it's the reemergence of a shame culture. It's publicly dishonoring people without any sort of due process. There's no opportunity for mitigation. There's not necessarily a sense of proportionality or a possibility of forgiveness. If you look at Japan prior to World War II and uh, comparison of Japan's culture versus the American culture at the time, it's a good example of the difference between a guilt culture of America and a shame culture like Japan. And I think it explains why the Japanese could never surrender and there were kamikaze pilots because there was no recourse for them if they lost. Really. There was, there was no way to, to get out of the shame 
that would result from them not being victorious in battle. Now, guilt cultures conceive of morality as a voice within. It's a voice of conscience that tells us whether or not we've done wrong. Shame cultures think of morality as an external demand, what other people expect of us. So shame cultures are other-directed and guilt cultures are inner-directed. Now, guilt cultures make a sharp distinction between the sinner and the sin. The act may be wrong, but the, the person remains intact. There, there's value in the person. And so guilt can be relieved by confession, restitution, or a commitment to never do that wrong again. There's a way to overcome the sin. There's, there is a place for repentance and forgiveness. With shame, it's not like that. With shame, the sinner has a stain, which can never be fully removed. So there's no opportunity for forgiveness. Instead, you have to seek appeasement or some act of abasement, self-abasement, to put yourself in a better state. In a guilt culture, it makes sense to confess your sins because you can essentially be uh, go back to your to your normal. You can return to your normal standing in life. In the shame culture, it doesn't make any sense to be honest and, and acknowledge your your fault your flaws, because because there's no way to be made whole again. It, it, instead, there's an incentive to essentially cover up any wrongdoing. Now, what's interesting is. Rabbi Sachs talks about uh, the influence of his doctoral supervisor back, I believe, at Cambridge when he was training, Bernard Williams. And he talks about in his book, Shame and Necessity, how the most primitive experience of shame are connected with sight and being seen. Now, it's interesting because guilt, he argues, is rooted in hearing, the sound in oneself of the voice of judgment. And if you look at the Adam and Eve story, this is a interesting metaphor towards that. Let's, let's go through it a little bit. So Rabbi Sachs's premise is that the story is not primarily about forbidden fruit, sex, or original sin. It's about the respective role in the moral life of seeing and hearing. So how do we begin? Well, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. The serpent tells the woman that if she eats from the fruit, quote, her eyes will be opened. There's an explicit reference to a mode of moral judgment. They would know good and evil. And that has to do with sight rather than sound. The woman's looking at the tree and sees that it's intensely desirable to the eyes. The couple eat, their eyes are opened, they know they're naked, and they seek to cover their nakedness. So every element of the story is visual. But then an interesting line comes up. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. They heard God's voice walking in the garden, with the wind of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from God among the trees of the garden. So this is a strange verse because voices don't walk and you can't hide from God. So the point is that Adam and Eve are sight-oriented. And that's why they're experiencing a voice walking as if it's something to be seen rather than being heard. But Judaism is an attempt to base the moral life on something other than public opinion, appearance, honor, and shame. As it says in the book of Samuel, the Lord does not look at the thing people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And if you think about the most important uh, verse that describes our faith, it's the Shema, and it starts with Shema meaning hear or listen. So it's, it's, it's emphasizing the importance of the inner voice of conscience, 
of guilt rather than shame, of repentance, not rejection, forgiveness rather than appeasement, of the integrity of the individual regardless of his or her sins or deeds. So Rabbi Sachs argues that the return of public shaming and vigilante justice through viral videos or, or tweets, it's not a move forward, but it's a regression to a pre-Christian Rome and a pre-Socratic Greek. And it's not the, there's many ways for justice to be served, but justice isn't served through the pylons of social media. So I think um, words to think about as we, I, I certainly in my own experience can say that uh, whenever I'm having a delicate conversation, my least favorite approach is to do something by email. Obviously there's no nuance with email, there's no tone. The, 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 the next best thing is, or, or better than, than, than email is obviously a phone conversation, but then you're not able to see facial expressions, but you can get some tone. But, but if you really want to have a critical conversation, you do it face to face. And I find that there's just much less risk of hostile action. There's less, there's more ability to find common ground. Um, and I think that's in a nutshell, why we see uh, the polarization of society. If we're interacting primarily through social media and not, you know, together at a dinner table, for example. So with that, I hope you enjoyed this talk and see you again soon.